Reach Freaks. Thank you for listening to Invisible Choir. This episode contains sensitive material, including graphic depictions of violence or abuse against children, which some listeners may find especially distressing or traumatic. Listener discretion is advised. What causes someone to portray themselves as an upstanding, civic-minded, and church-going member of society? Someone who wants to provide a safe home for at-risk children, only to systematically torture and abuse them behind closed doors, all while hiding behind a mask of empathy, kindness, and civility. This time, on Invisible Choir. The mother was a mess out of me, and that karma was a bitch. No! Okay, so it is out, so we just need to do CPR then? Yes. Okay. Keep breathing, but it's not good. Please hurry. Yes, it was um, a significant amount of bruising on her back, all the way from her diaper up to her neck. facade. It's a false or superficial appearance put on by someone trying to hide or mask their true character or nature. At one time or another, most all of us have either heard about or encountered someone who could best be described as fake or inauthentic. Often, the person in question behaves this way in order to hide their feelings of inferiority or to gain ground in order to feel superior over others. Mental health experts describe them as highly manipulative individuals who lack self-awareness, thus causing them to have superficial and shallow emotional responses. Their motivations can range from benign all the way up to and including malicious intent. It's the latter type that can be the most dangerous and difficult to identify because they have usually protected their facade to the point it can even be hidden from close friends or family. The need that drives someone to mask their true selves to the public is often rooted in feelings of inadequacy, shame, low self-esteem, or past trauma and abuse. Over time, the facade becomes a comfortable mask for some, covering up their potentially dark and depraved character from the rest of us. Twenty-seven-year-old Jennifer Holcomb Rosenbaum grew up in an unstable home filled with domestic violence and physical abuse. Her family was often homeless and she drifted in and out of foster care from the age of nine. While she was under the care of Georgia's Division of Family and Children's Services, commonly referred to as DFACS, she was described as combative and at times difficult. She had anger and rage issues. She lied and was unnecessarily defiant and difficult to control. She was an angry girl, and rightfully so. Life had dealt her a bad hand. She longed for stability in her life resented being a pawn in a system she neither understood nor controlled. But against all odds, Jennifer Rosenbaum emerged from foster care with a drive to succeed and vowed to better her life and help others in the process. Once she aged out of care, she served honorably with the U.S. Army National Guard as a military police officer to help assist and fund her higher educational goals. She excelled in academics and remarkably, was accepted to and attended the prestigious Emory University School of Law in Atlanta, 
While she pursued her graduate studies, she was also very civic-minded. She wanted to make a difference in her community and had garnered a following on public access television for her appearances at the Henry County Commissioner meetings. She became a thorn in the county's side. She was well-informed on local politics and demanded accountability and fiscal responsibility by the council members. Most of all, she liked the attention it brought. As a result, she began to meet other influential community organizers. She joined the Young Republicans and used the platform to find established and important mentors. She also worked as a legislative aide to Representative Mike Dudgeon's office. He went on to give her a glowing reference that led to a highly sought-after internship with Henry County Probate Court Judge Kelly Smith Powell. With each step of success, Jennifer continued to perfect her mask of kindness and empathy. As a result, Judge Powell introduced Jennifer to Mary Evans Battle, a senior assistant district attorney juvenile division supervisor for Henry County's DA office. Mary also happened to be on the board of DFACS. Because of these influential recommendations, Jennifer was able to bypass the normal hiring process and obtained a second coveted internship working for the district attorney's office directly under Mary. With Mary's encouragement, Jennifer also decided to run for the District 1 Henry County Commissioner seat. She was impressed by Jennifer and supported many of her political aspirations and ideologies. While Jennifer enjoyed the praise, she also enjoyed being combative and inflammatory when she thought she could get away with it. She began criticizing the county on social media, which eventually came to the attention of the district attorney, Jim Wright. It was against his office's policy for employees or interns to disparage or embarrass the county on any public forum, including social media. This behavior caused Jennifer to receive a formal written warning against making any further disparaging or public remarks. Privately, Jennifer believed this was a violation of her rights to free speech, and Mary agreed with her. Nevertheless, she counseled Jennifer to follow the rules so she wouldn't jeopardize her political future. At the time of her internship, Jennifer was married to Joseph Rosenbaum, whom she met in 2009. Due to Joseph's health status, the young couple could not have children of their own. Joseph was born with cystic fibrosis, a genetic and fatal respiratory disease that can be passed on to natural children. In fact, 97% of male sufferers are usually infertile. Because of this, Jennifer and Joseph could not have children of their own. Those suffering from cystic fibrosis also have a life expectancy of less than half the average healthy person, though it can be extended through a double lung transplant and diligent medical care. Jennifer fully embraced a spouse with such a grave diagnosis. She joined support groups, and it was something she shared often and with anyone who would listen. It became another part of her mask. She was a savior, and her marriage proved it. Despite their inability to produce their own biological children, Jennifer and Joseph both wanted to raise a family together. They had previously applied to become foster parents on two different occasions through defects, but both times they were denied. The first time Jennifer applied, she did so under her maiden name. That application uncovered her past history as a former foster child with defects, which resulted in an automatic denial. Jennifer was informed that past foster children with a history of physical abuse cannot become foster parents. The reasons behind that policy were because most child abusers have a long history of being abused themselves. The second time she applied with Joseph using her married name and purposely did not disclose her previous history within the foster care system. 
potential foster parents are required to attend an orientation, as well as various classes, on top of undergoing extensive background checks. Jennifer did none of those things. She was also very demanding and combative with the supervisor in charge of the foster parents program. She would call and demand to be approved without the appropriate background checks or other requirements based on the fact that she was a law student and a self-proclaimed superior candidate. She believed they would be lucky to have someone of her social standing as a foster parent. During one phone call, she was so incensed by the application process that she hung up on the supervisor after telling her, quote, you don't know who you are dealing with. Because of her rude demeanor and temperament, that second application was also denied. Um, so you stated that she um, uh, wasn't, wasn't very nice, correct? Yes. Uh, did she... Um, did you explain to her, though, that um, you were still in the process of reviewing the application? Yes. Okay. Um, and what did she say to you? Um, she said that um, I don't know who she uh, that I don't know who she is. She used to be at a friend's house, and I said, "Well, I need to review the case." I need to review your uh, the history before we can make any determination on this. And then she went ahead to tell me that she worked at the DA's office, that she knows everybody there. So um, I don't know who I am really dealing with. So when she finished, she hung up the phone. So she hung up the phone on you? Yes. Jennifer knew that with her political connections and with a little known loophole, she could bypass becoming an official foster parent and still meet her goal of becoming a parent. Her internship with the DA's office required her to observe Mary Evans' battle in the juvenile courtroom where she prosecuted juvenile offenders. This same courtroom was also used for custodial foster care hearings by DFACS. Custodial placements of minor children were confidential, but the rules didn't seem to apply to Jennifer. In April of 2015, Jennifer saw a name on one of the custody folders that she recognized. It was for the custodial placement for two-year-old Layla Daniel and her older sister, four-year-old Millie Place. Jennifer also recognized the child's grandmother, Regina Banks, who was in attendance that day. Jennifer had been in a foster home with Banks' daughter, Tessa. Tessa was a few years younger than Jennifer at the time, and Jennifer, with her current mask of kindness and empathy, decided that she wanted to foster Tessa's children. She learned that the world hadn't been kind to Tessa, and she wasn't the same foster care success story that Jennifer had become. Tessa became addicted to methamphetamines when she was just 16 years old, and her addiction led to repeated incarceration for drug-related violations. Tessa was also pregnant at the time with her third child and knew that she would be heading to jail soon on another drug offense. Jennifer thought of it as justice to take Tessa's children from her and adopt them as her own. With the help of Jennifer's supervisor at the DA's office, she was able to contact Tessa's caseworker, Samantha White, and asked to be put in contact with Tessa, offering to become a, quote, fictive care home for Tessa's children. She knew a fictive care placement didn't have the same stringent requirements that becoming an approved foster parent did. In essence, Jennifer would be treated by the courts as a close family member and would be able to bypass the formalities of becoming a licensed foster care parent. This was the loophole she was hoping to take advantage of and to use as a shortcut to become a foster parent. Although becoming a fictive care placement is less restrictive, there is still requirement of a background check in home study. 
to ensure the success of obtaining custody of Tessa's children. Jennifer reached out to her directly on Facebook with the intention of reconnecting and obtaining Tessa's permission to become foster parents to her children. Tessa's situation was quite unique because there really wasn't anyone in her life who could offer a healthy and stable environment for her children. Even her own mother had passed substance abuse issues. It was only Tessa's maternal grandmother and her children's great-grandmother, Peggy Banks, who offered any stability at all. However, she was in poor health and had recently undergone a hip replacement. She also only wanted custody of Tessa's oldest child, Millie. She had no interest in two-year-old Layla, and the two of them together were more than she was able to handle. Throughout Millie and Layla's short lives, they were repeatedly left in the care of strangers, acquaintances, and even given away to friends of friends. In fact, Tessa once gave Millie to the relative of the woman who had been taking care of Layla for almost a year while she continued living a transient lifestyle, never able to provide a stable or consistent home for either of the children. Likewise, the children's respective fathers and extended families also weren't ideal placement candidates. Both fathers were also struggling with substance abuse and addiction, as well as prison sentences. Some of the caregivers truly loved the children, but due to extenuating circumstances, weren't able to care for them permanently or together. Tessa's mother worked with a woman named Cynthia Tate. Cynthia's daughter, Tiffany Shaw, was a young stay-at-home mom with a one-year-old little boy. Cynthia and Tiffany provided a home for Layla until she was almost two years old, raising the children together as siblings. At the same time, Millie had been living with her great-grandmother, Peggy Banks. Unfortunately, Peggy lived in a community that required all occupants to be 55 years old or older, and that's when Millie went to stay in the same home that was caring for Layla. But it had become too much work for them to care for both children. They were considered a safety resource home and weren't receiving any financial assistance from defects. Cynthia then asked her ex-husband and his new wife, Michelle and Scott Chapman, if they would come and meet Millie and possibly care for her. After spending 30 minutes with Millie, they took her home and with Tessa's blessing, intended to adopt her. Um, well, she, we had, we went over there and, um, I saw, we met, um, her ex-husband and his, um, new wife. Do you remember their names? Um, Scott and, um, Christy Chapman. The Chapmans? Yes, ma'am. So you, you said you went over, where did you go over to? To, um, Miss Tate's. You met the Chapmans? I met the Chapmans, yeah. What happened when you met the Chapmans at the state center? Um, they were really good with Millie, and um, they just, um, they seemed to be good people, like, um, and I had a, I had stuff going on, like I had a probation warrant and stuff, and I knew that I was going to have to leave Millie and that she didn't have exactly a stable, like she was staying with me and my grandma, but she wasn't exactly, you know, she still lived with me, so I had to get her settled. And um, I made it to where the Chapmans and my grandmother, you know, had an open line of communication. I guess they knew each other. So before I left Millie and told them I had to go take care of the warrant and, um, did you ask the Chapmans to take care of Millie? Why do you have to take care of Millie? Yes, ma'am. And do you know how long did they agree to take them? Yes, ma'am. The children were not officially in the state's care, 
so the Chapmans were considered another safety resource or fictive placement by DFACS. While DFACS had some oversight and provided referral resources, they were not in technical legal possession of the children. Nonetheless, the Chapmans were instructed not to allow Tessa or her family to take Millie with them for any reason. Tessa's grandmother, Peggy Banks, was very unhappy with this decision, and when Millie's dad was briefly out of jail, they went to visit with Millie. However, they had an ulterior motive. I think my, my, her father and my grandmother went and got her without asking or something. And when they went and got her father, would that be Jacob Place? Yes, ma'am. When they got Millie, where did they take her? Um, I mean, I don't exactly remember where they took her. Um, probably my grandma probably kept her. I was going to have a follow-up question. To your knowledge, did Millie continue to stay with the Chapmans after your grandma and Jacob went up? No, not after they went and picked her up, to my knowledge. After your grandma and Jacob went and picked up Millie, when's the next time that you saw Millie? Oh, let me ask you this. Did Millie ever come back to live with you? No, but I went. Um, she actually went back to, now it's kind of coming back a little, she went back to um, Cynthia's house. As a result, Cynthia Tate was unhappy dealing with Tessa's family, as well as DFACS, and asked that both children be removed from her care. Ideally, DFACS wanted both children to live together and placed them in a foster home with the Brown family. Millie knew her mother's name and helped the Brown family contact Tessa on Facebook. They didn't have any background on the children and wanted Tessa to know that both of her children were safe. Miss Brown offered to come and pick Tessa up and to take her to church with them. But before that could happen, the children were placed with a paternal relative of Millie's who agreed to take both children together. However, just two days later, she changed her mind. And that's when DFAC set the fateful hearing where the girls first crossed paths with Jennifer Rosenbaum. Yeah, um, that's when my caseworker um, contacted me and told me that they had somebody that I, I knew um, that was interested in taking my girls in until I could complete my case plan. They wanted to help out. And who was that person? Um, it was Jennifer. And did you know Jennifer? Jennifer, um, yeah, well, she told me her name, so I, I went on Facebook and looked her up to see if I did know her because she said I should. And when I did that, I saw that it was Jennifer Holcomb, and I'd known her from living with her at a shelter. And um, you tell me about your relationship with Jennifer. At that time, you knew her as Jennifer Holcomb? Yes, ma'am. that the same person that's here in court, Jennifer Rosenbaum? Yes, ma'am. And what was your relationship like with Jennifer Holcomb? And you said you all were in a shelter at that time? Right. She was a lot older than me. Um, we weren't really, like, friends. But I couldn't remember. Um, I couldn't remember us being enemies exactly, but then um, I didn't reach down deep in my brain to try to figure it out. All I saw was like her, like how good her pictures looked and looked like she would be able to take care of the girls and you know, she was a pretty upstanding person. It seemed like if she wanted to help me and she remembered me that it was, you know, like, I didn't even try to think of no bad stuff. I was like, I just kind of accepted that. Tessa was immediately impressed by the facade that Jennifer had created on Facebook 
and didn't recall at the time that they hadn't previously gotten along. It never occurred to her that Jennifer would want to harm her children. From the illusion portrayed on social media, it appeared that Jennifer had a stable home, was running for public office, and was almost an attorney working at the district attorney's office. When she went to contact Jennifer, she was pleased to see that she already had a message waiting from her. It says, um, hey girl, I know we haven't seen each other or talked in a while, but I wanted to let you know I'm praying for you. I met your girls last Wednesday at juvenile court. I work with the district attorney's office prosecuting juvenile offenders, and we use the same courtroom as defects cases. Your girls are beautiful and look so much like you. I think it was your mom who talked to me for a minute and said you were having a hard time. It just stuck with me over this past week, and so I wanted to reach out and let you know you are in my prayers. And did you respond back to her? Of course, especially after um, Samantha White told me that she was interested in the girl. And I don't know if you can read that or not. Is that your response back? Yes, ma'am. Let me read that. Yes. What day did you respond back to her? Um, I responded back on the 20th, um, 2015. And what was your response? Um... I said, thank you so much. God, I miss them so much. I can't believe I put my babies through all of this. When I knew what it felt like the first, um, when it, I knew what it felt like firsthand. I talked to Ms. White and she told me that you were interested in getting my girls until I can work my case plan. I think that would be amazing. It would make me feel so much more comfortable with the whole messed up situation. I'm fully ready to work towards getting them back, but if they have to be away from me for a while, I would much prefer them be with you. Thank you so much. You are literally the biggest blessing. Tessa was overjoyed to hear from an old friend and put aside any issues they had in their youth and focused on the fact that someone was trying to help her by helping her children. She immediately replied, and after exchanging messages with her caseworker, Samantha White, requesting to allow the Rosenbaums to become a priority fictive care foster home for Millie and Layla. Unfortunately, this blessing would take a dark turn, ending with fatal consequences. I felt like they could pay more attention like, to them. I felt like they had good stuff going on. Um, like, as far as stuff... You know? Had you had any contact with Ms. Rosenbaum? What was no. the last time to you that you had spoken to or even seen? A long time ago. A long time. How did you know what was going on with her to make, make you feel comfortable? I just looked at all her pictures of her and Joseph and their dogs and stuff, and I don't know, I just felt like they just looked like good people. And I felt like maybe if she knew me and reached out to me, that maybe I didn't have the best memory, but I figured that she couldn't mean nothing bad by that. Like, I feel like she had to have good intentions if she reached out to me. Did you feel like your girls would be safe with the Rosenbaum? Yeah. Did you know Joseph Rosenbaum? No, ma'am. Had you ever met him before? No, ma'am. I only knew her as Holcomb. I hadn't seen her since she'd been married. Before Jennifer and Joseph could take possession of the children, they were granted visitation while they completed a home study and background check. It was later discovered that someone who was unauthorized to sign off did so, even though neither of the requirements had been performed. 
While the Rosenbaums were awaiting official approval, the children were placed together in a seasoned foster care home with Patricia Lambert. Mrs. Lambert prepared a notebook for each child in her home and meticulously documented their care. She also insisted that the caseworkers comply with policies that required them to physically inspect each child during the mandatory monthly visits. Not all caseworkers followed the rules, and this was unacceptable to Mrs. Lambert. She described Millie as very stoic and adult-like and wise beyond her years. Millie preferred engaging in adult conversations as if she were an equal instead of as a child. Because Layla, who was almost two at the time, was still nonverbal, Millie would try to speak for Layla and act as her caregiver. Layla grew confused by the constant change in guardians and would easily become frustrated and throw tantrums. Layla also had food issues, wanting to constantly eat while also hoarding her food. The girls were both evaluated at Mrs. Lambert's home for counseling. However, ultimately no counseling was recommended as the children, while neglected, had never been physically abused nor suffered any trauma that they could meaningfully discuss due to their ages. DFACs usually recommended therapy only for children five or older who could verbally participate. Due to Jennifer's political connections, she was immediately given overnight visitation with the children. Right away, there were signs that the Rosenbaums might not be qualified caregivers. After their visitations began, the children were returned with burns, bruises, and abrasions. Mrs. Lambert was concerned that Jennifer was too new to caring for young children and perhaps wasn't providing them enough supervision. When the caseworker failed to respond to her concerns, she took the children to the defects offices on two separate occasions and insisted they document and photograph the injuries to both children. She hoped the injuries were truly accidents and that it was just a matter of them learning to provide more diligent supervision for young and active toddlers. Besides Ms. Rosenbaum indicating that if defects didn't expect for her to have kids and they come back with bruises, did she give you any explanation as to how those injuries occurred? Well, her excuse was they always playing. So that's the only thing I would hear from her. Did the girls continue to have visitations with um, the Rosenbaums? Yes, ma'am. In regards to these bruises, those photographs, you said they were taken at defects? Yes, ma'am. Who took those photographs? A caseworker by the name of Maeda Makedon. And how did Miss Maeda Makedon come to take photographs of those injuries? Because I brought them in there. Why did you take the girls into defects? Oh, I'm sorry, the lights can be here. <laughs> it's, it's defects policy that if a child get any bruises, whether in your home or with someone else, Defects has to know. So let me ask you, if a child fell down some stairs, is that something that you should be reporting to oh, defects? Sure. Um, if a child fell off a lap, is that something you should report to defects? Most definitely. If a child fell off a bike, is that something you should be reporting to defects? <laughs> yes, ma'am. Let me ask you, in regards to the defects policy, what's their policy as far as discipline? We do know we cannot touch. We cannot touch them, period. Now, a timeout will be fine. After going to DFACS, um, what did you tell um, DFACS? Was it Ms. Warner that you spoke to, or Ms. Macedon? I spoke to Ms. Macedon. She was the only one I could get at the time. Did you try to reach anyone else? I did. Who did you try to reach? 
I tried to reach both the caseworker and her supervisor, which is Ms. Warner. Okay. And the caseworker was who? Samantha White. Were you able to reach, reach Ms. White at all? No, ma'am. Okay. Um, were you able to reach, reach Ms. Warner? No, ma'am. When you weren't able to reach them, what did you do? I showed up at the office. And is that when you talked with Ms. Macedon? Yes, ma'am. And what did you tell Ms. Macedon at that time? I let her know this is an ongoing thing that's been happening. So somebody needs to do something. Take some pictures and try to get it investigated. Did you have any concerns about the girls coming back with injuries? That's why I took them to the office, because of my concerns. What was your concern? To me, if you have taken a class in training, you would definitely know that having a child in your home that does not belong to you, you gotta have eyes all around your head and the back sides everywhere because they're little kids so they get into stuff very easily. Did you ever tell anyone that you thought that the Rosenbaums were abusing the girls? No, that's not my place to say. When the caseworker was notified, she discussed the concerns with her supervisor. Policy dictated the opening of an investigation as to why and how the children were obtaining injuries while with the Rosenbaums. But that never happened. This would become a recurring theme throughout their placement with defects. The girls weren't just falling through the cracks, they were falling through deep crevices. The reasons for those failures would only become evident in hindsight. Caseworker Samantha White's supervisor was getting pressure from the DA's office to transfer full-time care of Millie Place and Layla Daniel to the Rosenbaums. Jennifer had been telling Mary Battle that the children were getting injured during visitation with their biological family. In Jennifer's version of events, the biological family were villains, and she was always their selfless savior. What Mary didn't know was that Mrs. Lambert meticulously inspected the children after each and every one of their mandated visitations. There were never any injuries to the girls when they returned from visiting with Tessa or Peggy Banks. They were only injured after visits with Jennifer and Joseph. Despite Mrs. Lambert's concerns for the children while they were in Jennifer's care, Defax was getting pressure to place the children with the Rosenbaums. And what was the conversation in regards to that email that you received from Mary um, Evans Bath? She basically wanted us to place the child, um, the children in the home of the Rosenbaums and was asking what's taking so long. And what was your response to her as to the time frame? That we have 30 days by policy to assess a family to determine um, for the home assessment and to allow my staff to marry Warner and the contractor to do their job. After you received that email, what did you do, if anything, in regards to receiving that email? I just asked to marry them, did they contract the home eval out? And she said yes, it's still in process. And I said, okay. Let me ask you, did you know um, either Jennifer or Joseph Rosenbaum prior to receiving that email? No, ma'am. Have you ever had any contact with either one of the defendants? No, ma'am. Okay. And you spoke about there being a process for a home evaluation. Can you tell us what a home evaluation is? A home evaluation is where the department, either we complete the home eval ourselves or we contract it out. And it goes through, we observe the the resource home, the dwellings, to make sure there's sufficient um, bedding, um, sleeping quarters for the children, 
um, if they have sufficient income, they pass a, a fingerprint live scan, drug screen. Um, we get references, three references. Uh, we do CPS check, 911 check for residents, um, 911. Um, we basically assess their parental capacity to care, be a caregiver for the foster children. The caseworker was directly contacted by Mary Evans Battle from the DA's office, who was also on the DFACS board. Even though the Rosenbaums hadn't completed any of the requirements to become caregivers, that didn't stop Jennifer from asking for special favors from friends in high places. At some point in time, um, how do you know that the girls are now being placed with the, with the Rosenbaums? Who made that decision? How did that decision happen? Um, we were actually instructed by um, our judge to move them. Okay. And what judge is that, if you remember? I'm not sure which one okay. it was. Was it, at that time, was, was the plan to place the girls with the Rosenbaums, let me ask, after Ms. Lambert's complaint, what was the plan as far as visitation and placement with the Rosenbaums with DFACS? We were gonna continue the visitation just to give more time to, um, I guess, learn how to better manage the children um, in regards to like supervision and making sure they're playing safe, I guess. And, um, were there any, I guess, resources or anything of that nature provided to the defendants as far as supervision and dealing with the kids after having the complaints by Ms. Lambert? Um, nothing was put in place, but I do know Ms. Lambert off, you know, offered her assistance. To, you know, she could call her whenever she needed help or advice about something. And to your knowledge, did that ever occur? Um, yes, they had open communication. And... You said at some point you got an order for the children to be placed. Yes, ma'am. And who removed the children from Ms. Lambert's home to take them to the Rosenbaum's home? That would be me. And did you observe the children on the day that you removed them from Ms. Lambert's home? Oh, yes, I saw them. Okay. And did you observe any marks, injuries, or bruises on them? Not that I remember. On July 24, 2015, despite many glaring red flags, both children were transferred into Jennifer and Joseph Rosenbaum's full-time care. Jennifer was ecstatic and immediately asserted her dominance and control. Without consent or authorization, she sent an email to Tessa and Peggy Banks, telling them both that their visitations with the children would cease immediately for 30 days. She blamed it on the caseworker wanting the children to settle into their new home and establish a bond. But this wasn't true, and after the month had passed, Peggy wanted to resume her weekly visits with Millie. She would usually take the child for the entire day, from morning until night. On occasion, if she had a second person to help her, she would also take Layla. Jennifer wanted to control the children, even when they were with their great-grandmother. She insisted the children stick to her regimented schedule. When she found out that Peggy let Millie forego a nap, she made a new rule. Peggy could only pick the girls up after nap time at 1 p.m., thus effectively cutting her visitation in half. Jennifer wanted to cut off all contact with the family, 
but she had to appear somewhat cooperative because she still wanted custody of Tessa's yet unborn child. Eventually, Jennifer began making excuses as to why the children couldn't visit with Tessa or their great-grandmother Peggy each week. Sometimes it was because the children weren't feeling well or had counseling or gymnastics. Most of the time, it would only be Millie who was available. That was because Layla had too many unexplained bruises that she couldn't hide or excuse away. Jennifer had over 2,000 pictures on her phone of the children, but most of them were of Millie. When Tessa was unable to visit, she would ask Jennifer for pictures of the children. They communicated regularly through text and Facebook Messenger. Jennifer would routinely slip back behind her mask, encouraging Tessa to get herself healthy so that she could regain custody, even though that was never her true intention. Tessa soon began to notice that Jennifer was only sending her older photos of Layla, even though Jennifer insisted that they were current. She would share activities the children attended, but the photos were only of Millie. The children's biological mother began to grow more suspicious, but never said anything. Yeah, I, um, she sent me pictures and stuff um, of all the stuff she did for Layla's birthday. And then, after, you know, I mean, she sent me other pictures too, but or she would tell me if, I mean, what am I? No, but she would tell you things about the girls? Yeah, like, or why I couldn't, why they couldn't, why I didn't see them. They, she'd say either Layla was sick, Layla was always sick. When you were talking to the girls about the girls, was she giving updates on what they were doing, how they were feeling? Yeah. Um, she, yeah, she had, she tried to update me on that, um, I guess a lot, as far as, I don't know what she'd say, but, I mean, she would say things that would say it was like an update, I guess, on them. Mainly, we really just talked about how I was coming along in the case to get them back, but if it, like, um, defects made me schedule my my visitations and stuff through her, so I'd always try to ask her about that, but it'd never be a good time. I'm going to direct your attention to a specific conversation on August the 12th. So we're going to start at the bottom. Is this a message that you received from Ms. Rosenbaum? Um, yes, ma'am. And what date was that? August 12th, 2015. And at what time? At 2.05 p.m. And what was her message to you? Um, just a heads up, I'm on my way home early. The daycare called and Layla has a fever and is, and is throwing up. And what was the next message that came? Um, at 2.06 um, p.m. Same day, it says, I'm about to take her to Children's Health Care to get her checked out, but the daycare thinks She's caught the bug going around in her class. I'm going to keep her and Millie separated so Millie doesn't get it. And the next message? A minute later, she said, but depending on what the doctor says and after I talk to Ms. White, it may be a visit with just Millie. Were you scheduled to have a, a visit with the girls on that day? Yes, ma'am. Did you, to your knowledge, did you know before that day that the girls were in daycare? No, I mean... Not that I'm aware of. Did she ever mention daycare or where they were attending daycare to you? No, I don't think so. Jennifer continued to make excuses for why Layla couldn't visit. 
often saying she wasn't feeling well or told elaborate stories of how Layla had become injured. Jennifer recounted one imaginary incident where Layla had to go to the hospital for an IV after contracting the flu. She often described Layla as unfazed and a, quote, trooper. Usually only Millie was available for visits, since Layla was often unwell. After being pressed for more photos, Jennifer sent a picture of Layla with a black eye. She told Tessa that Layla got it in daycare. She also told Tessa that Layla was the aggressor and the bully, and spun an elaborate tale of the other child as the true victim, who looked much worse than Layla. The only problem with that story was that Layla wasn't enrolled in daycare. She also wasn't enrolled in counseling or gymnastics, but that didn't stop Jennifer from using those events as excuses as to why Layla was never available for a visit. The defects caseworker Samantha White would visit the children monthly. It was defects policy that she physically inspect any nonverbal children from head to toe without any clothing on. She was also required to speak with older children like Millie privately. Yet all of her reports failed to document or mention any of the visible injuries that were captured in the photos being sent to Tessa. In fact, the caseworker's report specifically stated that there were no visible injuries reported or present. The next month, in August of 2015, Layla had two black eyes that were observed by Jennifer's neighbor. Jennifer once again told her neighbor that she was a foster parent and the children were horribly abused by their biological family. She took every opportunity she could to garner sympathy and to showcase her supposed acts of kindness. She explained to her neighbor that Layla fell down the stairs and sustained the black eyes and an injury to her nose. Her neighbor, Michelle Hall, was a registered nurse and thought the bruises looked older and suspicious. She was also concerned that Layla seemed listless and at times catatonic. She didn't believe Jennifer and told her the child needed to be seen immediately at Children's Hospital in Atlanta. She watched Jennifer's house for two hours and grew upset that she never once took Layla in for proper medical care. She went back over to Jennifer's house and confronted her, insisting they call the non-emergency line at Children's Hospital for guidance. The hospital said she could wait to be seen until the very next day by her regular medical provider, so Jennifer promised her neighbor that she would take Layla to the doctor the following day. Even though that neighbor was also a mandatory reporter, no call was ever placed to Child Protective Services. Um, she was carrying the child on her hip and said, hey, um, she fell downstairs and hurt herself and I'm just worried I don't know what I need to do. Well, I was looking at her and her face was swollen. Her bridge of her nose was swollen, but her eyes were black, which in my history of nursing and parenting alone, um, when you have a enlarged gap right here that's, that's reddened, Usually the eyes are not black until a day or two later. That's, the, that's like a trauma, it's called raccooning. And so I knew that the injury couldn't have happened right then. The child was very stoic, she did not cry, she had no emotion, I did not feel comfortable and I immediately told her that she needs to go to the emergency room. And what was her response to you when you indicated that she needed to go? Let me ask you, what did she say when she brought the child over to you? She said that she face planted off of the flight of stairs uh, and landed on her face. And did she tell you why she brought the child to you to look at? She just wanted, she said she knew I was an ER nurse and wanted to know what she should do. And I informed her that she needs to take that child to the emergency room.
One of the reasons why neighbor Michelle Hall was so concerned about Layla was because of something Jennifer had said to her daughter, Jordan, prior to the children being placed into her care. And how do you know Jennifer was involved? Jennifer was our neighbor at the time I was attending college and she knew of the Georgia Legislative Internship Program and so that is why we were introduced. And where were you um, when you were introduced to Jennifer Rosenbaum? I was at my mother's home. And um, tell me about that conversation when you met Jennifer Rosenbaum. Well, at first it was very normal, you know, she was just introducing herself, letting me know about the internship, but then we started to talk about our lives in, in general, and she told me that she was fostering children at the time and one thing that struck me as a little alarming was that she said that the children that she was fostering she had interacted with them before because they were the biological children of a previous foster family she had been with and what did she tell you about um, those um, biological parents of the children she said that the mother was a meth addict and that karma was a bitch because now she would be taking care of those meth addicts children. How did it make you feel when she made those statements? I felt very uncomfortable, first of all, because it was my first time meeting Miss Rosenbaum, and that just did not seem like a normal statement to me. So I told my mom from that point on, I didn't want to interact with her by myself at all. Jordan Hall was alarmed by Jennifer's statement that she previously knew the mother of her foster children and, quote, the mother was a meth addict and that karma was a bitch because now she would be taking care of that meth addict's children. Jennifer had previously asked the caseworker, Samantha White, about sending both girls to gymnastics. Defects denied the request. Later, Jennifer enrolled Millie under the name Millie Rosenbaum. While Millie attended classes, Layla would sit quietly on the bench in a catatonic-like state never speaking or making eye contact with anyone. She didn't have the energy of a normal toddler, likely because she was often in varying stages of healing. When one of the other mothers asked why Layla wasn't also taking classes, Jennifer told her that the toddler was her foster child and was a drug baby, once again maligning the biological family and making up stories that painted them all as monsters. She shared that Layla's mother was addicted to meth and had burned the child and made her eat feces. Jennifer constantly told untrue stories about the children's history, always making sure that she looked like the selfless savior. Jennifer liked to perform, and the world was her audience, while the children were her props. She also told the other mother at gymnastics that Millie was her natural biological child. She casually made up lies with ease about spending $25,000 on IVF treatments. She would also mention that her husband had cystic fibrosis, and probably wouldn't live long enough to see Millie grow into adulthood. Despite Jennifer's flawless performance as a selfless wife, mother, lawyer, and community member, there were cracks in her facade. It was growing clearer to most people around Jennifer that she held a genuine affection for Millie and seemed to be developing a seething rage and disdain for Layla. The next month in September of 2015, the caseworker again noticed that Layla had a quote, mark on her face. Jennifer told her the same story she had told Tessa two months before, that the mark was the result of an altercation between Layla and a little boy at daycare, again telling her the story that Layla had attacked the little boy 
and that he was injured far worse than she had been. She described Layla as an angry bully, but Jennifer was beginning to slip and was having trouble keeping her lies straight. She had forgotten that anyone who watches the children for any reason had to be reported to DFACS. This included daycare providers. When asked for the information, Jennifer gave the name of a daycare where Layla had allegedly sustained the injury. Yet when Samantha followed up, she discovered that Layla wasn't enrolled at the daycare at all. When asked again, Jennifer told her that they changed churches and provided her the name of a different daycare facility, chalking the whole thing up to a convenient mistake. When Samantha White contacted the second daycare, she discovered once again that Layla had never been enrolled at that facility either. And when confronted again for a third time, Jennifer told her that the enrollment hadn't been finalized because Samantha had failed to provide her the proper paperwork, which included Layla's birth certificate. But the daycare had no requirement for a birth certificate for children to enroll. Even though the caseworker had caught Jennifer in another blatant lie, she never followed up with how the injuries were actually sustained, nor did she open up an investigation with CPS. She let the issue drop completely. It's not known whether Samantha White was just derelict in her duties, or if she was intimidated by Jennifer's high-ranking political affiliations. Jennifer would frequently drop the name of prominent community leaders, including Judge Powell and Assistant District Attorney Mary Battle. She would also regularly discuss her ongoing political campaign for a seat on the county commission. However, it should be noted that after a thorough investigation into all of Samantha White's cases, it was only the Rosenbaum case where she repeatedly failed to properly do her job. During the next month's visit in October, Layla had sustained a broken leg, and Jennifer informed the caseworker that she had enrolled both children in gymnastics and that Layla had sustained the broken leg after falling off of a balance beam. Jennifer also told Tessa the same story about Layla's injury, but it wouldn't be the only story she told. She would eventually tell others a much different version of events of how Layla had broken her leg. And did, can you tell me exactly what she said about um, how Layla hurt her leg at gymnastics? Um, she just said that she had hurt her leg while at gymnastics and they went to the ER. Did she ever mention that the girls were outside playing in the front yard and that's how Layla's leg was hurt? Uh, no, ma'am. Did she ever mention that Layla had fallen in a hole at Peggy's Banks house and that's how her leg got hurt? I remember that story, but as far as for her leg, um, that it was injured while at gymnastics. And you said that um, you reported it to your supervisor? Um, yes, ma'am. And did you do anything else? Um, well, we talked that night, and it was like, so we would discuss it more in the morning. Um, we talked about it first thing that morning. She wasn't sure of what else we needed to do, you know, past her going to the ER and seeing what the doctor recommended. Um, so we went to, I believe we went and spoke to our admin, but she wasn't there, so we went over to the CPS side to see if there was anything else that we needed to do as far as um, a report or just document or, because we weren't sure. Did you have to make a report or document that in any way? Um, document, yes, that part we were sure of, but there was a, a form that we had to fill out. Did you fill that form out? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Do you know whatever happened to that form? Honestly, I'm not sure. 
did you ever do any investigation with the um, gymnastics school in regards to the injury that had occurred, according to the defendants, at the at their location? Bless you. Oh, um, no, I did go to the um, the gymnastics building. I went and went to one of Millie practices. Um, I didn't investigate. I kind of just stood back and watched everybody's interaction and everything, seeing what would be said. Um, I try not to make myself know when I go to one of the child's events. After Layla had broken her leg, it was DFAC's policy to open an investigation and to have the injury examined and investigated by Child Protective Services. Samantha White stated that she filled out a report and informed her supervisor. However, the report was never found and her supervisor denies ever being notified. Samantha White allegedly attended one of Millie's gymnastics lessons and quietly watched from the background. She didn't talk to anyone. She didn't confirm the injury, nor did she ask anyone if Layla had ever been enrolled. Had she done any of those things, she would have discovered that Jennifer once again had lied about an injury to Layla. She also would have discovered that Layla had never attended nor been enrolled in gymnastics at all. But there was one other thing she would have discovered had she run her due diligence. The balance beam utilized for children's classes in Layla's age group was only four inches off the ground. Just like the black eye Layla sustained the previous month, this injury too was never properly investigated. If it had been, things could have been very different for Layla Daniel. Jennifer had an alternative story of how Layla had broken her leg when she spoke to medical providers or her political mentors. In her second story, she placed the blame on her favorite villains, Layla's biological family. In her second recounting of events, she alleged that Layla had broken her leg after falling into a hole in Peggy Banks' backyard. The only problem with that story was that Peggy hadn't had visitation with Layla for months. And even if she had, Peggy only had a back patio and it was entirely covered with concrete pavers. Jennifer sent Tessa a photo of Layla with a forced smile and a hip-to-ankle cast on her entire leg. She told Tessa that Layla was a, quote, trooper and didn't even cry. Jennifer also told Layla's pediatrician that her foster child was forced to visit with her biological family, where there was little to no supervision, again telling the story about Layla falling into a hole in Peggy's backyard. The pediatrician then wrapped the leg with bandages and told her to take Layla immediately to Children's Hospital, where a forensic examination could be performed for child abuse. Even though the doctor was a mandatory reporter, he never once called Child Protective Services. Jennifer then left and waited three days before taking Layla to a different doctor, who didn't ask any questions and placed a hard cast on Layla's leg. If anyone had properly investigated the injury, they would have easily discovered that Layla's broken leg wasn't consistent with either a fall into a hole or from a fall during gymnastics. Layla had a break to her shin bone, just below the knee, which is commonly referred to as a nightstick break, which means it's a defensive injury sustained when you put up an arm or leg to fend off an incoming blow. In fact, the next month, Layla would receive another nightstick injury to her arm, resulting in yet another broken bone. This injury went untreated as Jennifer knew she couldn't get away with explaining away a second broken bone. As Layla's untreated arm began to heal, it took on an odd and deformed shape. Had Samantha White followed up with the medical provider for Layla's broken leg, she would have likely discovered that Jennifer had once again lied about where and how Layla had become injured. With the repeated injuries and changing stories, it begs the question, 
How did caseworker Samantha White never discover any of Layla's bruises, burns, or other injuries during any of her monthly progress visits? When Samantha visited Jennifer again for her regular monthly visit a few days later, on November 2nd, 2015, she never actually saw Layla or checked for injuries. This glaring omission was despite the fact that Layla had broken her leg the month prior. Jennifer told Samantha that Layla was sleeping and had been teething. Samantha White couldn't remember checking Millie for injuries either, but after reviewing records, recalled noting a small bruise to Millie's eye, but was told at the time that Millie simply slipped in the bathtub. Because there was no fear of her drowning, she didn't believe that the injury was an issue and didn't report it to her supervisor. Even much later on when the horrific reality of what both girls endured was eventually made public, Samantha was still using minimizing language to describe their injuries. Black eyes were often documented as just a quote, Mark. Um, November 2nd. And tell me about that visit. Um, it was still just a regular, a regular visit. Um, I know Layla, I really I did not see why well, I saw her, but um, I didn't actually visit with her. She was asleep. Um, what does that mean? You didn't actually mean? see her? Oh, I mean, like, I saw her, but, like, I didn't, you know, I didn't wake her up. I didn't remove any of her clothing or anything. <laughs> okay. Why not? Because she was asleep. They've been having some issues with getting her to sleep. Where did you get that information from? Uh, Ms. Rosenbaum, they said she was having issues um, with teeth coming in, so she'd been really upset, hadn't been sleeping a whole lot. And how old was Layla at that time? Layla was, um, she was still just one. In 2015? Or, no, she was getting, she was getting ready to be one. In 2015, are you certain about that? Or did she come in at one? So she was two. Oh, thank you. So did you undress her at all after being told that she was having trouble for sleeping due to her teeth coming in? No, I did not. Okay. Um, so would you be able to tell whether or not she had any injuries or bruising on her? No, ma'am. She, when, she, when you saw her, was she clothed? Yes, ma'am. Okay. And let's talk about Millie. Did you um, examine Millie? I did not. You did not examine Millie? No. Okay. Did you notice any injuries or um, bruising to Millie on that November the 2nd visit? No, ma'am. Just 15 days after that visit, both children would be covered with bruises, and they would both have untreated and undiagnosed broken arms in various stages of healing. Layla was also suffering from a healing fractured rib. In truth, Layla probably wasn't sleeping that day due to teething. She was most likely sleeping because she had a non-fatal lacerated liver that was slowly bleeding into her stomach cavity, causing her to be more and more lethargic and listless as it continued to slowly heal. It's also equally unlikely that Samantha White performed a full-body inspection of four-year-old Millie Place, as her buttocks were black and blue, along with her inner thighs and pubic area, where Jennifer liked to kick the girls when they moved too slowly. In addition to these injuries, which would have all been noticeable just 15 days prior, of most significance was the head-to-toe bruising of Layla's entire body. But a supposed accident on November 17th would finally draw back the curtains on the horrific abuse both girls were suffering. But it was already 
too late. What's going on there? 788 radio code. I have a toddler, a foster daughter that I just got. She was choking, and I tried to do the Heimlich on her, and she's still breathing, but it doesn't look good. And we have to drive. One one one. We didn't drive. One one. How old is she? Two. Is she two years old? Yes, she is. She is breathing now. She is breathing. I'm trying to do CPR. So keep on going right on you. I'm hoping that didn't break a rib. I've been pushing hard. I don't really know how to do this. Okay, I'm going to give you instructions on how to do it. Is she still choking on it now? No. Okay, so it is out, so we just need to do CPR then? Yes. Okay. She's breathing, but it's not good. Please hurry. Okay, none of this is slowing them down. None of the dispatchers get them on the way. I'm going to give you instructions for you on what to do. Are you with her right now? I am. She's okay. breathing very, very low. Okay, lay the baby flat on her back, uh, on the ground. She's flat on her back. All right, move any pillows. On the ground. There's no pillows. All right. Flat. Look in the mouth for any food, uh, for any food or vomit. Is there anything in her mouth? Okay. Place your hand on the baby's forehead. Your other hand under the baby's neck and shoulders. Then slightly tilt the head back. I want you to, right. I want you to put your ear next to her mouth and tell me if you can feel or hear any breathing. I hear it. You do hear it? Yes. Okay. All right. Stay with her. Uh, make sure her head is slightly tilted back. And I want you to keep checking breathing often. I want you to, uh, starting now, every time she takes a breath in, tell me when. Just say now, every time she breathes. When, now. Now. Now, is it, does it matter that she's asleep? No, that's now. fine. That's fine. Oh my gosh, I'm so nervous. I don't know you, how to do this. I just kept trying to push and everything. You're fine. You're doing a good job. Like I said, I got help on the way to you. Okay. Oh. Yeah, we're just monitoring breathing right now. She is breathing. She just did it. She breathed again. She's breathing on that same little schedule. Okay. Yeah, she's doing fine. Like I said, we got them on the way. She just breathed again. Okay, yeah, she's doing fine. What, do you know what she was choking on? Chicken. Okay. She said she is asleep. Yes, because her eyes are rolled back. She is breathing, yeah. We, we make sure. She keeps telling me. Uh, yes, yeah, she just breathe again. Okay. She breathes again. But this is so scary. Are her eyes supposed to be like rolled back? Her eyes are rolled oh back? Oh my god. Yeah, like I told you, like she's, her eyes are rolled back. Her, her eyes are closed, but they're rolled back. She's really pale. She is really pale now? Okay. Yeah, she's still breathing on that same schedule, but she's pale. Hey, she's still breathing, but it doesn't sound as good as strong as it was. It doesn't sound as good as strong anymore. Alright, we're going to go ahead and do CPR then. November 17th, 2015 was Jennifer Rosenbaum's 27th birthday. It was also Layla Daniels' last day on Earth. 
When Jennifer called emergency services, she informed them that her foster child was choking on a piece of chicken and that she was concerned her life-saving efforts would break a rib or hurt the child. More than likely, Jennifer was probably starting to panic as she realized that emergency personnel would soon see the evidence of the horrific torture and sustained abuse that she had inflicted on Layla's battered and bruised body. Did she have a pulse? No, did not have a pulse. Was she breathing? It was not breathing. And what does that mean to you? Well, the call had, that she's, at this point, she's, she's clinically deceased at this point. What do you do, you know, having that information that she's clinically no, that means we need to we need to move forward uh, to the next step, which is to initiate the life-saving measures that we can do. Uh, the call come out as a choking call, so I just uh, the first treatment that I was going to do was try to clear an airway, just in case there was an airway obstruction. Typically, pediatric patients, once you clear the airway obstruction or take care of any type of respiratory problem, they're very resilient and they come back a lot better. So we want to try to rectify that first, just in case. So I took the child and done five back blows where I have to turn her over. When Captain Gibson arrived at the Rosenbaum home, he noticed Layla didn't have a pulse, but felt that her core was still warm. To clear any remaining obstruction from her airway, he performed five back blows and then turned her back over. Uh, did notice um, quite a bit of bruising. I'll just put this down here on her back. Was that prior to you administering those five back blows that you talked about? Yes, it was um, a significant amount of bruising on her back, all the way from her diaper up to her neck. Did she have on any clothing when you came into the home? Just just a diaper laying on a navy blue towel. Is this what you observed, um, the injuries that you observed to her back when you turned her over for those back blows? Yes, ma'am. And, and as I saw that, I, I asked uh, the, the female that was, was, was sitting there, uh, what's her medical history? And that's a typical question we ask. I want to find out if the child's sick or, or, or something of that nature so we'll know what course of action to take next. Um, but she said uh, she wasn't sure that she was a new foster child. Jennifer tried to distance herself from Layla's poor condition by stating that she was a new foster child, just as she had done during the 911 call once again slipping behind the mask of kindness and concern. With the facade back in place, she said just enough to make him believe that she wasn't responsible for Layla's bruising, and it worked. Captain Gibson believed Layla was lucky to have gotten out of a bad situation, lucky to be placed in an upper-middle-class suburban home with an educated and caring foster mother. He couldn't have been more wrong. Because of Layla's condition, Captain Gibson assumed the extensive bruising might have been related to a recent trauma she sustained prior to being placed with Jennifer, not realizing that Layla had lived with the Rosenbaums for the past four months. Under normal circumstances, they would have called a time of death on scene, but given her age and conditions, they performed extraordinary life-saving measures in a desperate attempt to bring the toddler back to life. What other things did you notice as you were checking her over? Uh, was, you know, obviously the bruising. Uh, there was a bruising uh, on her back from her diaper up to her neck. She's laying on her back at this time, so we noticed some bruising on her pelvis and both wrists. I, uh, when we was doing the D-stick, I can't remember if I was the one that performed the D-stick, which is the blood sugar test. But we did notice, in my view, that um, I took her arm, her left arm, and picked it up. And said, is her arm broke? 
and I manipulated her arm just a little bit to see if it was, if it had any kind of movement or crepitus. And I didn't feel any, but the arm appeared to have a slight curve in it. And so what did that tell you when you asked the question, is the arm broke? It appeared that uh, I was concerned that it may have been broke right then. And, you know, at that point, and it maybe even be um, moving. But, but it wasn't. It, it, felt, it felt intact, but it did have a bow in it. After the EMTs left with Layla, Jennifer called Joseph at work and told him to meet her and Millie at the hospital because Layla had choked on a piece of chicken. She also called DFAC's caseworker, Samantha White, to notify her that Layla had been taken to the hospital by ambulance. I went to the hospital. How did you know to go to the hospital? I was contacted by Ms. Rosenbaum. And what did she tell you that caused you to go to the hospital? She said that Layla had been choking. She um, had stopped breathing. She couldn't dislodge what was um, in her throat and that she had called the ambulance. Did she say whether or not she was ever able to dislodge whatever she alleged was in Layla's throat? Um, no, ma'am. Where was she when she called you, if you know? You said where was she? Yes. Um, I believe she was at home. Well, I assumed she was at home. Where was the defendant Joseph Rosenbaum? I'm not sure where he was. Um, I, know, I don't think he was there. After she called you, what did you do? <clears throat> uh, I called my supervisor um, to see if I had permission to go to the hospital. And did you go to the hospital? Uh, yes, ma'am. And what happened when you got to the hospital? Um, once I got to the hospital, they put us in the, um, I don't know, it was, some, it was like a little side room. Um, and that's when the doctor came in and he spoke with me and informed me that she had passed away. Was Ms. Rosenbaum or Joseph Rosenbaum present at that time? Uh, Ms. Rosenbaum was present. Mr. Rosenbaum, he was on his way. Were you in the same room with the defendant, Jennifer Rosenbaum, when the doctor informed you that Layla had passed away? Um, yes, ma'am. So he told you both at the same time? No, he had pulled me out of the room. Okay. So after he pulled you out of the room and told you that Layla passed away, what did you do? Um, honestly, I went back in and I confronted her with the information that he had gave me. What did you tell her? Um, that, well, for one, that she had passed away and that she had several bruises on her lower half. And what was her response? I honestly just remember her crying. Um, and she seemed to just be in shock. She didn't say anything about it. She was crying majority of the time. Did she give you any explanation for those bruises? No, ma'am. The ER doctors were shocked by the condition of Layla's battered and bruised body and had called in law enforcement. Layla's entire back was black and blue down to her buttocks and between her thighs and pubic mound. She had a deformed and bowed forearm that looked misshapen. She also had two black eyes and injuries on both sides of her face and ears that included varying stages of healing from open hand slaps to the face. There was even skin missing on the back of one of her ears. 
Jennifer appeared in shock by the news and failed to give an adequate explanation as to the condition of Layla's body. After a while, Jennifer told Samantha White that she had patted Layla's back, trying to save her life, as if the life-saving measures could somehow explain away Layla's heinous and cruel injuries. After that, honestly, um, we were in the room. By that point, I had one of my, I had one of my co-workers with me, and at that point, I just took Millie's clothes off and I just, I checked her from head to toe and she had a small, she had a bruise on, I'm not sure what side it was, but on her um, hip. And where were you when you undressed Millie? We were still in the room, in the, um, the little side room that they had put us in. And where was the defendant? She was still there. Was she in the yeah, I believe she was. I think she was still there. Was she in the same room with you where you were undressing Millie? I. Yes. And you said you saw some bruises. State specific number seven eight is behind you. Is that one of the bruises that you saw, Millie? Yes. And state specific number eight is that the bruising that you saw? Millie? Yes, I am. After you saw that bruising on Millie, what did you do? Honestly, at that point, I had just started crying. And so my coworker took Millie out of the room and took her outside. Um, and by that point, CPS was there and I was instructed to go home. Did you ever get any explanation as to those bruises on Millie? Um, Millie stated that she, this is before Ms. Rosenbaum said anything, but Millie stated that she had um, fell while at gymnastics. fired from her job and personally sued, along with defects for the wrongful death of Layla Daniel, Samantha White was still uncertain of many of the facts surrounding her murder. While testifying, she continually minimized Millie's injuries and referred to them as small bruises or marks. To refresh her recollection, she was shown a picture which depicted extensive and inhumane bruising and injuries to Millie's body. Other witnesses recalled the day with more detail and clarity. Shortly after Layla was pronounced dead, the ER nurse quickly took Millie from Jennifer and placed her into a private room with caseworker Samantha White and a CPS investigator to be examined. When Millie was asked how she got her bruising on her upper back, spine, buttocks, and between her legs, she insisted that she fell and hurt herself at gymnastics, a lie she was repeatedly told to tell by Jennifer until she regarded it as the truth herself. When the nurse asked Millie if anything else hurt, she mentioned that her elbow was a little bit sore. An x-ray later confirmed that Millie had an untreated broken arm, sustained at least 10 to 14 days prior. They also found 15 additional bruises through her head, back, and legs, all in varying stages of healing. She explained that the bruising between her legs was from falling off of her bike. Millie Place was immediately taken into custody and placed back with Patricia Lambert. A few days later, after being assured that she would never have to see the Rosenbaums again, she began to open up. She shared a disturbing conversation with the police during her interview. She stated that she heard Miss Jennifer and Mr. Joseph 
discussing their plan to kill Layla. Just a week later, that Layla would be dead. But law enforcement eventually pieced together a much different story. They believed what Millie actually heard was Jennifer and Joseph fighting over the abuse of Layla. They believed that Joseph was concerned that if Jennifer didn't stop abusing Layla, she may accidentally kill her. Millie told investigators that Joseph would tend to her injuries and would rub cream into her owies to make them feel better. After executing a search warrant, law enforcement found Layla and Millie's blood on a small couch in the master bedroom next to containers of Icy Hot and other pain-relieving cream. After just a few days in Mrs. Lambert's care, Millie began to slowly disclose the abuse that both she and Layla endured in the Rosenbaum's proverbial house of horrors. Stay tuned for the next episode of Invisible Choir to hear the tragic conclusion to this case. Thank you.